Good morning. It may be that you actually responded and I couldn't hear you because you're so far away, but I'm going to try it one more time. Good morning. Ah, uh, there we go. Okay, now I can hear you. You guys need microphones too. Um, so I'm happy to be here with you in uh, what seems continually unique circumstances for us. And uh, speaking of unique circumstances, uh, before we dive into the word today, I just want to share a little bit. You know, um, last time I was here for an outdoor service, um, my son was getting water poured over his head with some other people, and uh, Beth College was uh, offering prayer for the missions work that comes out of this church. And one of the uh, missions that you support is the mission of Netzer. Um, and that's, you know, where I provide leadership. And I just want to share with you a few things that have been going on. Um, this, this year didn't turn out quite the way we all anticipated it would, obviously. And uh, what's interesting about following the Lord is that when we follow the Lord, the circumstances that come to us, sometimes God uses circumstances in order to shape direction. But by and large, the, the inner work of the Holy Spirit is to help us navigate whatever circumstances come our way, come the way of our culture, come the way of our church, come the way of our family, come the way of our personal lives, that the internal compass of the Holy Spirit within us allows us to stay at true north, allows us to stay uh, centered in, in whatever those circumstances are. And I think... Uh, <laughs> You know, for years, uh, you've uh, those of you who have been here for years have heard us speaking about what is uh, regional church, what is the the broader body of Christ, and how do we work at building the ligaments in the body of Christ so that we can be strong together. And this year is one of those years where we would have had no idea how much the Lord would have used the ligaments in the body of Christ. Um, in order to allow us to effectively work together. But when coronavirus hit, there was a whole bunch of pastors who were sitting there saying, I don't remember anything in seminary that remotely <laughs> prepared me for this. And, uh, and then, you know, after that, we had uh, the George Floyd moment. And our culture just hit a, a different level of understanding ethnic inequality in our world. And the, the culture was having uh, a kind of coming aware moment and a meltdown all at the same time. And there was a bunch of pastors who said, I don't, I don't remember being trained for this in seminary. And then just a few weeks ago, uh, just over a week ago, here in our local area, uh, the Ashwood apartment fire took place. And I was on the line on a call with social workers, government officials, with people from all around the area, people from the fire company, from the Red Cross, from United Way, and they're all looking at each other on a Zoom call asking the question, who's gonna take charge and how does this work? And you know what's interesting is that in our lives, sometimes we, we think we are kind of aware of what's happening around us and we can get into one of those patterns of things are going a certain way day in and day out and it seems like things are pretty locked in and we forget how fragile life is and we forget how how volatile this nature that we live in 
is and that it's such a delicate balance that God holds in place. And sometimes we're tempted to think that we can actually be in control because things have been so good and so consistent for so long that we think we have the knowledge of, of the parameters of our lives. And then 2020 hits and we start to remember like, man, this is all very, very fragile. Our nation is fragile. Our psyche is, is fragile. Our culture, it's fragile. And there's a lot that's disparatic. There's a lot that can pull apart very quickly. And trust holds us together with one another and with God. And when that trust goes missing, it is a dangerous thing. But when circumstances come our way that seem out of our control, but we have learned to trust God and trust one another well, it's amazing what we can handle. And we praise God over the fact that for many of us who didn't know what to do with coronavirus and don't know what to do, for many of us who have no idea how to solve uh, generational problems, 400 years of systemic injustice, and we don't know how to address it in the moment, for those of us who are watching uh, people displaced from their homes and, and saying, I, I'm not a social worker, I'm, I'm, not in a, I'm not someone who's trained in disaster relief response, emergency response. God has a way of binding his people together, building on the trust that is there and meeting deep needs. And I was reading this morning about Moses and the Israelites when they, the day that they prepared, when God told them, I, I want you to get into your house and I want you to, to take an animal and I want you to slaughter that animal and get ready to eat it. And don't take more than, than you need in your house. Just what, you're, what is needed in your house. Put the blood on the doorpost, but get ready to eat this. And, and you want to have unleavened bread. It doesn't need to rise. It's unleavened bread that you're going to carry with you. Put the sandals on your feet. We're about to move out. And then it happens. A terrible crisis hits Egypt. And the firstborn of every Egyptian home dies. The culture loses sight of, of any source or any sense of reality. And things become chaotic very quick. But God has prepared them to move. And he puts in front of them a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And he guides them out into the wilderness. And he says, remember this day the day when you chose to trust me in preparation so that when I move, you are ready to move with me. That's an awesome story that we're called to remember. And the reason we're called to remember it is because it's as true for us today as it was for them about 4,000 years ago. And that's where we find ourselves in many ways is in a place where we don't know what's coming. We still don't know what the economic fallout is of coronavirus. We still don't understand what all is going to happen with the divisions in our nation. We don't know. What we do know is this. God says, put your sandals on. I'll give you what you need for the day. Stay trusting me, following me, connected to one another in covenant together. And we will get through this thing and we'll have a story to tell and we will remember how faithful God is. And I just want to thank you again for all the support that Parker Ford Church has been for the ministry of Netzer. Because whether it's been working with 
you know, crossing ethnic lines in the city of Philadelphia, whether it's been having Zoom calls with pastors from all over the place to talk through how we're going to be doing uh, church in coronavirus, whether it's uh, watching the mobilization of local churches coming together to meet the needs at the Ashwood Apartments, whatever it is, you all have been a critical part of facilitating the strength in the wider body of Christ that has allowed the church to walk in a greater unity in the time of chaos. And I believe that that is all for the glory and the honor and the praise of Jesus' name. Amen? All right. That's it. That's the report. Nicodemus, that's where we are today. John chapter 3. I'm going to be teaching next week, and we're going to go to John chapter 4 next week, and we're going to talk about the Samaritan woman. So John chapter 3, Nicodemus, and then we'll turn the page to the next story. And I think these stories are deeply linked. Um, so it's kind of a part one and two here. And so uh, we're going to start off in John chapter three. If you're uh, looking for a random passage to teach from, you know, you might as well find the most famous one in all of scripture. John 3, uh, 16 is of course the verse that we all know. Um, sometimes we forget the, what the context of that is. And we're going to talk a lot more about the context. So join me in a word of prayer. For weeks, uh, there was no sound of planes. There was very few sounds of cars. When we were in strict quarantine, there was, there was much less noise. There may have been a lot of TVs or radios listening to what was going on, but if we turned them off, all around us, there was just the sounds of nature. Father God, yesterday, today, and forever, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, Peter, Paul. God, we recognize that for, for Ruth and for Esther, for Mary, the mother of Jesus, that we are in a lineage of people who have understood the faithfulness of God. And our desire today is that you would remind us again that as we're still and as we're quiet, that you are unchanging, that you are faithful, that we can build our house on a rock. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may have heard the phrase that what we do in secret, what we do when no one's looking, reveals a lot about who we are and where our hearts really are. In the quiet place, when we're behind the closed doors. I want to say that in, that's, that's very, very true, but there's another principle that's exactly the opposite of that as well. Um, and that's that sometimes there's things that we're willing to do in private that we're scared to do in public. And I think that's where we find ourselves in this story of Nicodemus, isn't it? If you know the story of Nicodemus, it starts off with a man who needs to come to find Jesus but he wants to do it in the middle of the night when no one's watching. And so the opposite principle here is true, that it's not what he's willing to do in secret. It's about the fact that he's only willing to do it in secret. And so uh, what, what the, the question is, what, yes, what are the things that I don't want people to see? And if they're things I don't want people to see, I might be doing them in the middle of the night so that no one will see them, as well as I might be doing them behind closed doors so that no one will see them. So uh, here's, our, here's our passage, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. 
There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him, and him is Jesus, at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Now, Jesus had just come from having a pretty uh, intense moment If you look at chapter 2, what was going on was Jesus was cleansing the temple. And if you're a religious leader, a ruler of the Jews like Nicodemus, the fact that Jesus is going to come into the temple and is going to wreak havoc in the temple, that's a bit of a battle cry. That's a bit of a drawing of a line, isn't it? Where Jesus comes into their house, into their temple. It's not really their house, but I would imagine that that's kind of how they envisioned it. And he's going he's gonna to quote scripture, he's going to overturn tables, he's going to cause all this problem in the temple. And the next passage is where we see one of these rulers coming to Jesus. So you can imagine why there's a tension between this, in this man's heart. When DJ said there's a line that goes through the middle of our heart, there's one part of Nicodemus that yearns to understand what's happening, but another part of Nicodemus that understands his identity within the people of uh, his land. And he's like, I can't be seen with this guy. There's no way that I'm going to be seen with this guy after what just happened yesterday in the temple. There's no way that I'm going to go and have a conversation and kind of lower myself to be in the midst of all that mess. I have to go and investigate what's going on. I have to go check it out for myself because what he says is we recognize that you're from God. And it's interesting that he uses the plural. He says, we recognize that you're from God. I don't know who we is. Uh, Presumably, he's saying the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are different than the Sadducees uh, significantly. The Pharisees are kind of an upstart group. And uh, they're very passionate about their relationship with God. They're not a political group. They're kind of uh, people who are spiritually hungry. And that's why you see Paul say that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul was always a zealous hungry God seeker. And the Pharisees tend to be hungry. They tend to be passionate religious people. The Sadducees tended to be a lot more political. And that's sort of the way that worked. But these Pharisees who are passionate people, religious people, dedicated to their cause, have this person who they're watching come up with great power, moving in the spiritual realm in a way that's causing healing and causing all sorts of, of things to happen. And it's, it makes them scratch their head. But then he has an assault, an attack on the temple because the temple is not what it's supposed to be. So uh, Jesus, it says in, in chapter two, it says that many believed in his name. This is in chapter two, verse 23. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in a man. Jesus recognized that these people were seeing the power of God flowing through him, so they wanted to get a hold of Jesus. 
We see all throughout the first part of Jesus' ministry, people wanted a piece of Jesus because they saw power, they saw God, they saw the ability to get things done that they've always wanted to get done. They saw the ability to overthrow Rome, they saw the ability to have their wounds healed, they saw the ability for things to work out for their life to be better. And so all of them wanted a piece of Jesus, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. That means he would not put himself underneath of the will of people because he knew people. And he knew that at the end, when we as people are in control, that we have a tendency to to find a way to take everything we can and turn it toward our own best interest or what we think is our own best interest. But Jesus was called by God to do what was actually in our best interest. And we are always limited in our understanding of what our best interest actually requires. But Jesus is not limited. So he cannot entrust his power or his wisdom or his calling to us. He entrusts it to his father. And he follows the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and the Holy Spirit. And he moves. This man, Nicodemus, he was not used to having to trust someone the way that Jesus requires trust. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one else could perform these signs unless God were with him. Listen to how Jesus replies. That was the greeting. That was Nicodemus' greeting. Hey, I'm here in the middle of the night to see you because we know that you're from God. There's no way that this would work unless you were from God, but I'm still here in the middle of the night. Jesus sees right through him the way he sees right through all of us. And he says this, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, it's hard to see in the middle of the night. See how that works? You're coming to see me, but you're coming at night. See how it's different? in the sun versus in the shade. And in the middle of the night, if there was no light here, you wouldn't be able to see me right now. Nicodemus is still struggling because in his heart, he's still living in darkness. And Jesus knows it. And there's a part of him that's starting to seek for God. But he's still coming in the middle of the night. Nicodemus, how can anyone be born when he's old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Of course, we all know that Nicodemus is struggling because his logic just doesn't doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense at this point. So Jesus responds, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, you're working really hard here at trying to comprehend what's happening. And you feel a sympathy in Jesus who understands this guy's a ruler. He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. He's a Pharisee. He's always used to being the one with all the answers. He knows He gets it. He's the teacher. People come to him looking for answers. But in this situation, 
he's not going to get the answers that he's hoping for. He really wants to understand, but Jesus is essentially saying, you're not going to understand, you're going to have to trust. Before you can un before you can comprehend, even enter the kingdom, let alone see the kingdom, you're going to have to be baptized. You're going to have to be born. You're going to have to come awake again. And there's a different part of you. It's not the flesh. It's not that you're going to finally comprehend what's happening. It's not that you're finally going to be working hard enough or, or doing the right thing or that your the theology is going to make sense to you. What's going to happen is in the same way that a child doesn't get to choose when it's born, there's going to be a moment, Nicodemus, where you're just going to need to trust that you are like a little infant who needs to be born into a whole new world because you live in the world of the flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. However, if you want to understand the kingdom of God, if you want to know why these signs are happening. If you want to trust me, you're going to have to be born from the spirit. Because the only way you see that pillar of cloud, that pillar of fire, the only way you understand how the spirit moves is when you become alive spiritually. And that is not the work of comprehending a doctrine. That is the work of the regeneration of God working in a human heart. And that happens through the person of Jesus who happened to be standing right in front of him. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel, Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Truly, I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So what's Jesus actually saying here? What he's saying is, you want to understand the kingdom. You want to understand what, what's going on, this, this powerful movement of God. But there's actually only one person walking the planet right now, Nicodemus, who's actually been on the other side. There's only one person who understands from the perspective of heaven. It doesn't matter if you're a theologian, if you're a ruler, if you're a Pharisee, it doesn't matter. You haven't been to heaven. And he says the, the only one who has ascended to heaven is the one who descended from heaven. In other words, Nicodemus, you don't need me to help you understand. What you need is you need me. How many have had a moment where you need to be you needed to be corrected by someone who was quote under you like your child had to correct you about something or you're a teacher and your student had to correct you about something or you're you know uh you're the boss but an employee had to correct you about something if you've ever had that experience that is an awkward experience and uh, it takes humility to receive in that moment and you can imagine a, re a religious leader, a ruler, a, a voice of wisdom, a man of experience. Jesus is younger than Nicodemus for sure. A lot younger. I mean, we tend to think of Jesus as like God, but Jesus is a 30-year-old guy, right? So he's like, Jesus is 13 years younger than me right now. And if, and if a 30-year-old guy shows up and talks to Nicodemus, and I, I bet you Jesus was like a little grungy under the fingernails, if you know what I mean. And, you know, Jesus is, doesn't really play ball with the institution. 
he's kind of outside of the norm. And so here you have a guy who's outside of the norm, who's a little bit questionable, who's a little bit dirty, who's a lot younger, and he's coming to, and Nicodemus is so in awe of what's happening that he has to figure it out. And he knows there's problems brewing, so he's, he's trying to figure it out, but he comes to Jesus. But here's the thing, is that Jesus is not some 30-year-old guy who's got some kind of cool harebrained idea. Jesus is God of the universe, the son of the living God. And therefore, the posture in which Nicodemus needs to approach him in order to receive what he needs is the posture that we might need to, to approach a high king and queen who are exalted on their throne with majesty around them, with guards and armies surrounding them, with awe and wonder. This is the God of the universe. And if Nicodemus will understand Jesus, it will start because he has the humility to approach him from the right perspective. If, he, if Nicodemus is seeing Jesus as this guy who somehow stumbled across some power and a good idea, but we're the ones in charge as the rulers, and we will harness that, try to understand it, contain it, and then use it well and powerfully against Rome, that puts him solidly in the driver's seat and Jesus as a servant of his. It's never going to work. When we approach Jesus, oftentimes, the thing that's difficult is Jesus is so humble. It's hard to know just how powerful and how awesome God is because of how humble he is. When someone comes to you in great humility, it's very easy to see them kind of like down here, you know, like an infant. But what Jesus is actually saying is kind of like, Nicodemus, this is going to be hard to swallow. This is going to be difficult for you to get. But you have no idea what I'm talking about, and there's no way to explain it to you because you are just not capable of being on my level. But he says it in the nicest possible way because he's humble, and he loves Nicodemus, and he really wants him to get it. And it's not a power play. It's just reality. Nicodemus doesn't need some insight from Jesus. He doesn't need a little nudge, or he doesn't need just some power from Jesus. What he needs is the person of Jesus. He actually needs this guy. He needs God. This is how he says it. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him. It doesn't say everyone who believes in the gospel. It doesn't say that everyone who believes in these five points of doctrine. It doesn't say everyone who, uh, you know, understands the way of Jesus' life and lives in it. What it says is everyone who believes in him, who trusts him. It's about Jesus. It's not about religion. It's about Jesus. It's referring to himself in the third person, I think because it's a little bit easier probably for Nicodemus to swallow it if he's saying him in the third person and kind of putting himself out there instead of saying me. May have eternal life. You know, eternal life is not about primarily about time. It's about quality. Everlasting life is 
is about time, but eternal life is about quality. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Here it is. Listen to this. This is important. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth loves, comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. So here we are in the middle of the night and Nicodemus is approaching him and Jesus ends his dialogue with this man to say, here's the judgment. I didn't come. You need me. You need the son of man. But my job is I'm not here to condemn you. That is not why I'm here. I'm here to save you. I'm here to help you. So much so that I could tell you all the truth. I could tell you all the wisdom. I could try to explain all this stuff to you. But even if you got it all, even if you comprehended it all, it wouldn't help you a bit because what you need is me. You need me to be lifted up the way the snake was lifted up in the desert. You need me to go before you. You need me to do for you what you can't do for yourself. You need me to be God. You need me to be savior. You need me to be king. But there is a judgment, he says, and the judgment is this. If Jesus is the answer, if Jesus is the provision, if Jesus is the gift from God, then what's the judgment? The judgment is not getting the gift. The judgment is not receiving the grace. And this is the grace of God, that we get God. We get to have God. We get to be in relationship with God. The great judgment is that God might come into the middle of our darkness, but we might want our darkness more than we want God. And that would be terrible indeed. Nicodemus found himself in a place where he was starting to search, but he wasn't there yet. He wasn't ready to be baptized by the light. He wasn't ready to make his faith in Jesus, his trust in Jesus public. He wasn't willing to go into the waters of baptism and be born of water and spirit. He wasn't at the spot yet where he was okay standing up in front of the Pharisees and the religious leaders and saying, hey, we might have had a lot right but we don't have what this guy has. Let's close up shop and follow him. He wasn't there yet. He'll get there. But he's got to come into the light. I want to close by telling you a story. I, um, I've been a part of this church for a long time. I've been a part of this church since I was two years old. And when I had... Uh, finished up Bible college and I, we were at the old church and, uh, Jen and I had been dating on and off for almost four years. Cause I was a total train wreck. Um, 
And I saw Tammy laughing over there. She's like, yeah, I remember that. Um, there, was a, there was a lot in my life that I couldn't get figured out. And I was struggling with depression and there was difficulties internally. Just couldn't get it really settled, come to peace. And you know, I had gone through so much training of the Bible. I had gone through 13 years of Christian school. I had gone through four years of Bible college. I knew the Bible inside and out. And my favorite book of the Bible at the time was Ecclesiastes. That's messed up. No one's favorite book of the Bible should ever be Ecclesiastes. <laughs> the reason is because I related to the confusion that I felt in Ecclesiastes. One day I was at Valley Forge Park and God did something. But before that, it was January and um, I was in a tough spot and I just didn't know how to get out and I kept trying to figure it out. So one day I approached the elders of the church and uh, I don't know if we called them elders then, it was the shared ministry team and, um, and other leaders of the church and I asked if I could be anointed. Because in James 5, you know, it says that uh, when we confess our sins, when we come into the light, we, you know, when we bring stuff into the light, God can meet us there. When we're willing to meet Jesus during the day, God can meet us there. If we confess our sins, if we get open about where we really are, and if we come to our authority and we, in humility, ask for help, God can meet us there. And what I had been doing for a couple of years was really trying to figure myself out, figure God out, trying to make it work, and it wasn't working. And I was so self-consumed that I couldn't love other people well because I was just focused on myself, trying to get happy. But I came to the elders that day and I asked them to pray for me and they anointed me with oil and they prayed for me, like James 5 says. And they said, hey, you know, when you ask God to transform your heart, he'll do that every time. That's a prayer that he's gonna answer. That's not a, if it's according to your will. If you come to God and say, I need a new heart. I need you to change my heart. I need you to make me new. I need to be born anew, afresh. I need your Holy Spirit to work in me. That's not a if, that's a when. If you ask God, he will do that. He will change the human heart. There is no conditional statement other than if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It will happen. And so they anointed me and they prayed for me. And they said, God's going to do this. He's going to change your heart. He's going to put joy and peace in your heart. It's going to happen. It might not happen today, but it's going to happen. And, and so then there was this day I was in Valley Forge Park. And I was preparing a lesson. I was actually teaching a class for a bunch of pastors, going through all this stuff in my own life. And I was trying to figure out the difference between Solomon and David, because we were talking about the, the kings. And some of you have heard me tell this story before. But I just remember looking at Solomon and realizing this guy had everything going for him. He was so incredibly wise. He had so much wealth. And yet he seems so terribly unhappy and unfulfilled. And David, his dad, seemed to have so much going against him. Saul, his father-in-law and his king, always trying to kill him. His enemies always betraying him. Joab, his commander of the army, totally disobeying him. And, and right, like things were just falling apart. His marriage with Michael was a mess. Somehow underneath of it, when he would cry out to God in the Psalms, it always seemed to come around to a place of joy, doesn't it? I mean, when you think about David, you don't think of him as an inherently unhappy person. 
you think of him as a person of joy, even in the midst of all of that terrible life. And I was asking myself, why is it that David's life, his circumstances are terrible, and yet he is full of joy, and his son is, you know, has a silver spoon and is very unhappy? And this was what the Lord spoke to me in that moment that forever changed my life. You can know all about me, and it won't do you a hill of beans, Tim. But if you trust me, if you trust me, if you trust what I say about you, if you trust how I say I see you, if you trust me, you will find unending joy. Nicodemus wasn't there yet. He still wanted Jesus to explain things to him in a controlled religious environment so that he could still be in control of his life. But there will come a day when Nicodemus is seeing Jesus hanging up there like the serpent on the cross. And he will realize, I need him. I don't need to be in control. I don't need to be made better. I don't need power. I don't need understanding. I just need him. And for each one of us today, there's this invitation for the first time or for the 500th time to receive Jesus. To trust Jesus. To love Jesus. To follow the pillar of fire and the cloud of fire. To be born of the Spirit. To live by the Spirit. To be led into all the goodness of God. To enter into the kingdom and to see things from Jesus' perspective. That's the invitation to each and every one of us today and every day to be born again in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, if, if you, um, if you here sitting here in Parkford Church sense in your heart a desire to yield yourself to God again this morning for the first time or again to allow Jesus in whatever form he comes to us to be the one in charge if that's in your heart I just want to invite you to either imagine you standing there with your arms wide open receiving like a child or or just physically putting your hands out on your lap right now in a receiving posture and we just want to pray this and if you've never prayed anything like this before i invite you to invite jesus to be king of your heart to be the savior of your life for the first time and we just pray this jesus we need you jesus i I want you to transform me so I can be born again today. In the name of Jesus, amen.